Give the gift of choice this season with multi-store cards at giftcards.com. With multi-store cards, treat them to dinner, movies, or shopping on one convenient card. Featuring all your favorites like Macy's, Alta, and Lululemon. It's a great gift card everyone will love. For last-minute gifting, choose the Happy Holidays or Holiday Favorites e-gift, delivered straight to their inbox. Purchase multi-store cards today at www.giftcards.com slash multi-store. Celebrate more for less at HomeSense. More yummy, the best cookware by far. And three cheers for bar. More I love it gifts from chocolate to spa to ooh la la. HomeSense, cheer is here. What's going on? It is Adam West. Thank you for checking out this very special supplemental episode of the Bite Me podcast. It's just me today. Uh, We're going to be talking with Ian Dallas. He is the creative director behind this new game that came out. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's called What Remains of Edith Finch. And if you're a fan of the genre that's starting to emerge in video games, the um, the walking simulator, quote unquote, the narrative adventures, the first person uh, exploration games, kind of like Firewatch, uh, Gone Home, Everyone's Gone to the Rapture, Oxen Free, kind of to a degree, then you need to check out What Remains of Edith Finch because this is hands down my favorite experience I've had in this genre. And I really don't want to call it game, Ian, because it's, to me, it's more than a game. You call it a game. Yeah, you want to call it a game? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a collection of short stories uh, that you explore interactively, but, uh, you know, it, it looks and smells like a game, so I think we can call it a game. <laughs> okay, so now for some of us, like, I, I just play video games. I don't know all the fun stuff that goes into it, but as a creative director, what exactly is that uh, when it comes to games? What is the creative director's responsibility? What do you do? Oh, uh, I mean, I do a little bit of everything. So initially I come up with the idea for what the game is going to be, and then I keep refining that idea and trying to communicate it to the rest of the team uh, for the rest of the project. And uh, so I come up with the initial thing, but then I also like make prototypes to try to figure out a little bit more of what we're making and then coordinate with all the other departments and kind of manage everything, uh, hopefully, over the finish line. Okay. Gotcha, gotcha. So when it comes to this one in particular, What Remains of Edith Finch, it's a really um, it's a really interesting story. What is the process of coming up with something like that? Is this something you start with a complete story and then kind of flesh it out from there, or does it evolve over uh, time? No, no, the totally opposite. Uh, we start with, uh, in our case, we start with a feeling. Uh, and in this case, we started with the feeling of, for me, uh, a sense of the sublime and going back to like my childhood scuba diving in Washington state and the feeling I had being underwater and looking out at the darkness around me and the way that the bottom of the ocean kind of slopes away into like the seemingly infinite darkness and that combination of a moment that can be simultaneously beautiful, but also overwhelming. And so that's basically what this game is about. Like we started with that idea in mind, and then we made a bunch of prototypes and tried to explore that. And eventually, somehow, we ended up with this collection of short stories that you know are about this family, but they're also kind of about that experience of the sublime and you know coming face-to-face with something that is uh, stranger than you can possibly imagine. 
Gotcha. And that was actually, I had a follow-up to that question. It was, what is what inspires a story like Edith Finch? So you just kind of answered my follow-up question right there. Um, what's really yeah, cool... Yeah, I mean, that- a lot of it is like, you know, making the game itself kind of inspires it. Like, we start with this initial feed. It's like jazz or something where you've got mm-hmm. this kind of starting point, but then as you, as a team, kind of build this thing, you realize, like, oh, that was a terrible idea. But this <laughs> thing over here, that's kind of interesting. Let's Let's explore that. Right now, I don't know if you know this, but so our our podcast we're based out of Seattle, so mm-hmm. we're oh, up- right. So you're you're right near Orcas Island where this game uh, is set. Yeah, exactly. It's just a few hours away from where our studios are at. So, and I'm assuming since you're you grew up here in this area, that's kind of what um, made you decide to set that location in Orcas Island. And it's it's interesting because a story like this doesn't need to be set in any one specific place, but it was a major point to point out that this happens in the Puget Sound area and Orcas Island. What made you, I mean, aside from growing up here, what made it kind of important to include that in the game? Well, you know, I think early on when we're looking at these experiences of Sublime, like what people remember from their own life, a lot of it has to do with nature. It's like being out in the middle of the forest or being on top of a mountain. Like nature is a key part of a lot of these sublime moments. You can have them in other places like cathedrals or elsewhere. But uh, So Washington State made a lot of sense in that respect because there's so much rain, obviously. Uh, there ends up being a lot of greenery and a lot of wildlife. And just you know, you're never very far from uh, the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And then you know, secondly, because the game is about this kind of you know, slightly abstract idea of the sublime, uh, you know, there was a danger of it feeling a little bit groundless or like kind of just like purely an imaginative thing. And you know, I think surrealist uh, moments work best when they're balanced against something that feels really familiar. So something like, um, you know, Terry Gilliam's movies like Brazil or, uh, you know, like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Mm-hmm. Like when there are these, or even Saturday Night Live, right? When there are these <laughs> crazy jumping off points, it really helps to make it feel real going into that so you believe it um and because i was so familiar with washington state having grown up there uh, you know it just made a lot of sense to ground this in the experience of you know what it's like to live in washington state right and like some of the outdoor environments as you're beginning the game and walking up to the house and seeing things and even you know some of the smaller parts of the story seeing the ocean and stuff like that they're all very detailed very vivid but the indoor environments in particular in this game are so detailed that like it's to the point of clutter in some of the rooms (laughs) right so it was really amazing to kind of see that like a lot of thought went into making it some of these rooms look so messy um how do you how do you go about planning and building an environment like that especially with a smaller team oh you know it's uh one person's job uh, as a designer uh you know to spend like a year and a half two years just doing bedrooms basically uh, you know, kind of laying out what these rooms are going to be like and figuring out, like, who these people are and how to express who they are through the objects in their room. And then a team of artists, you know, that are working through. I mean, it's a little bit like uh, like so much of the game is very abstract and very, like, prototypey, and we don't really know where we're going. The bedrooms are the opposite, where we knew, like, okay, we need to do, like, 100 chairs. We need to do, like, this kind of bureau. We need this kind of record player. Uh, it's just like a, a battle, you know, like a marching list through, you know, all of these things to do. Um, and, you know, like the the detail of the bedrooms, in addition to telling the story and kind of conveying a sense of who these people are that live in the bedrooms, uh, also was part of, you know, what we're exploring in the game, uh, you know, this kind of in-between space of something that is natural and something that is kind of the human world. 
Uh, and what we found, you know, in places like, for example, the clutter on the walls, there's this point where uh, when you have enough photographs on the wall that it transitions from being something that feels like like a normal family space into almost looking like the bark of a tree, you mm-hmm. know, where you've got like so many of these little pieces. So, you know, that's part of the aesthetic of the game is that this house is just so full of life over the years that it kind of transforms into almost like an organic entity. Right. And now, if there is there anything that maybe a lot of people are going to miss, like a little Easter egg or something that uh, one of the artists maybe threw in there that we're going to miss on our first walkthrough on this? Is there something that any of us should look out for, like a funny book title or something? Oh, I mean, there's tons of stuff. I don't know. You know it really depends on, on how observant people are. Uh, but, you know, two of my favorite things that I think you know, most people will miss, uh, one of the photos in Barbara's room is uh, there's this guy in a Speedo that looks, you know, super nerdy uh, from the 1960s, but it's actually one of our artists. Uh, it's like a photo of himself. It was really embarrassing that uh, we, we convinced him to let us put in the game. Uh, and then the thing that, uh, like my personal favorite little tiny touch, uh, there's like this 1960s um, rocket ship that uh, one of the family members builds for this other, like one of the children, Calvin is really into space, and uh, the little rocket ship uh, thing, like it's like a fort, has a cigarette ashtray in it, uh, like a plane from the 1960s. <laughs> and I personally just really love the idea, uh, you know, of little ashtrays that in 1960, you know, that's kind of it's just all around you. You know, like even on planes, you could smoke. So there were little ashtrays. Oh, that's so crazy. Built that into this rocket ship. Nice. Um, how hard was it to nail like so many different game mechanics, by the way? Because it's this is a really cool game in that when you start telling the stories, it kind of goes into its own little vignette and starts telling the story from a different perspective and almost like a different play style. Like you swim, you fly, you're inside a comic book, uh, you turn into a cat. And <laughs> all these different things that a lot of AAA games can't even pull off effectively, let alone well, um, you're, you and your team managed to pull that off. Is there a secret to that? Like how difficult was that? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's really what this game was about for us, was starting from the very beginning of, you know, what is the player doing? Like, how do we express, you know, like in one of the stories, for example, you know, this little girl having a dream where she's transforming into these animals. Like, how do we express the way that a little uh, girl sees the world? And so, you know, it's definitely difficult to make all of these different, you know, mechanics, but that was of what we signed ourselves up for in the beginning. So it wasn't like a surprise. Uh, I would say there's a secret, you know, it's that we made a bunch of stories that we ended up cutting, uh, you know, they gotcha. just didn't work. <laughs> so it's just trying a lot of things and then, you know, finding out what doesn't work, but then also, you know, doing a lot of playtesting and just looking at how people respond, like what makes sense to them. A lot of things, you know, when you have the luxury of, you know, four years or so of development, uh, like we did on this game, you can just watch people be confused for mm-hmm. years <laughs> if you like make small adjustments to help them figure it out. I think with this game in particular, the challenge wasn't just in creating, uh, you know, what it feels like, you know, that one story, for example, like to be a cat or to be an owl. It was how do you create that feeling, but then also something that players can understand very intuitively because the game doesn't have tutorials. Like we throw you into, oh, you're an owl now, (laughs) but you're only going to be an owl for about two minutes, you know? And so it's not just creating a thing. It's also like, making it so that players aren't frustrated by it and they can kind of go along with the rest of the story 
And again, that's just a lot of tuning, a lot of really smart gameplay programmers. Right. Um, one of the cool things that you do in the game is the use of texts and subtitles. Um, it's extremely unique in the way that you guys have implemented it. Like when I play games, like when I'm playing games with a lot of uh, a lot of voice acting or whatever, and you've always got the option to turn the subtitles on or off, I don't like turning them on because I feel like they get in the way of the actual game, and I feel like mm-hmm. I'm reading more than I'm playing. But with this game in particular, I mean, the way that you used it was so unique. How did you come up with the idea of integrating it in that way? Uh, yeah, I think initially it came from the... Uh observation that the game was so inspired by stories and you were finding each of the stories that you play is really like a physical story, right? That you find, you know, a diary that's written or, you know, like a letter that someone has has written and having text be in the world as 3D objects was a way to kind of remind players that they weren't experiencing something firsthand, that they are seeing the world through someone else's kind of description of the events so that it's always uh, you know, visual, that it's a story. Uh, and so we, we had this idea of the 3D text, but then uh, as we kind of you know, went along and made all these prototypes, we realized that it also, you know, in addition to being tonally appropriate, uh, helped us with a lot of other issues we were having, you know, like encouraging players to look in a certain direction, for example, mm-hmm. or you know, in the house, because by the time that you arrive as Edith, everybody else in your family is dead, the house is empty, or, or deserted rather. I mean, it's full of, of, uh, of things that uh, you know, people have collected over the years, but there wasn't a lot of movement in the house. And having the text move around uh, was a way for us to just add a bit of light. So, yeah, like, as we went along, we just found more and more uses for the text, and it felt more and more appropriate. So you know, we just built out this kind of crazy, elaborate system for, uh, for putting text into the world. In particular stories, too, there were times where it was kind of difficult, for example, when you're flying a kite, like, how do you interact with things as a kite? You know, and the text gave us a really natural way to uh, you know, interact with something in the fluid way. Um, yeah, I really, well, yeah, I really enjoyed the scene with the kite, the way that you, you kind of uncovered the letters flying around over them and then made them go away uh, when you flew the kite back over them. I really like that. Um, and I also enjoyed the way, like I think you kind of uh, mentioned, putting the text in a way to kind of lead the player to the next kind of, kind of down a path. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully, you know, this is balance, right? Of, of uh, you don't want players to feel like they're being led by the nose, right? But you know, I think it is nice for players, you know, especially in a space that is kind of in some ways designed to be confusing, to have a sense of like, oh, right, that's where I'm supposed to go. Right. Now I feel like I can actually explore these other areas, you know, and I, I don't have to worry about what my next objective is. Totally. So now. Um these games, they are so Cliff, one of the guys on the show, um, he dislikes the term walking simulator because it seems so dismissive of like what the game is actually doing. You're not just you're not just walking around. You're you're a part of a story. Yeah. Uh, things like narrative adventure seem more appropriate, but those are not you know as mainstream. What's your take mm-hmm. on these this this genre that's really becoming a thing? Like, how do you f- refer to them? Uh, I mean, I think walking simulator is probably the best shortest most common definition that we have, but I agree that it's a little bit confusing. I mean, I think first-person exploration game, like I've heard FPX, right. uh, but that's also like, you know, it's less common and a little more confusing. Uh, you know, I would hope good game would be or <laughs> interesting game uh, would be, uh, you know, good enough description for it. But, you know, in the absence of a better term, I'm okay with walking simulator, uh, you know, as long as people understand that in this particular game, you don't just walk. You know, like walking is part of it. Uh, you know, it's almost like 
first-person games without a gun. You right. know, like, how else can you interact with the world? And it turns out, lots of ways. You know, I mean, there are first-person walking simulators where you do nothing but walk, and I think those frustrate me as much as, you know, a lot of other people. So, you know, this game, in some ways, is like a reaction against that, of like, what else can we do in this world that isn't just about walking? And it's not even really about telling a story. It's about creating an experience, like something where players can interact and, you know, see the world from a different perspective. Right. So now, uh, games like Edith Finch, um, did you read the article in The Atlantic? Yes. Okay, so Cliff was very confused and somewhat outraged uh, with that article. Um, but, you know, we're kind of at the beginning of these narrative adventures where they're becoming more and more, you know, popular and a really great way to tell an awesome story. Um, five to ten years from now, they're going to catch up uh, with technology, with the developers like VR technology catching up with the uh, development tools and stuff and be way more immersive than they are even now. What do you think that games like Edith Finch are going to be like in the future? Hmm. Um, I mean, I... I would hope that there's never going to be another game like Edith Finch. It's um, not a very efficient way to go about making a video game. Uh, I'm glad we did it. It's just like a very weird, you know, unique thing. But, I mean, my hope would be that in the future we would just see a lot of different stories, like stories that aren't all about men with guns, um, you know, in their early 30s. It's, just like, it's a very well-explored niche uh, of, of human experience. And, you know, I think Rod Humble, uh, developer from The Sims, once talked about it as like when you walk into a video store uh, in the old days, right? I mean, right. Like oh, I remember, the, I remember the video, video stores. stores. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's actually it's a useful metaphor. And you think about like, what are the experiences like in video games and what are the stories like? And it's pretty much just like science fiction and action, you know, for like almost all of the stories in video games, you could fit that in one part of the video store. And there's a lot of other kinds of stories that could be interesting. Um, But, you know, we haven't really explored yet. And I think virtual reality offers, you know, a really cool chance to make some of these experiences that otherwise, you know, wouldn't be interesting uh, suddenly kind of on the table. And I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, what people do with that. Gotcha. Um, and I guess one more question about uh, what remains of Edith Finch. In per- well, I've got a few more questions, but they might contain <laughs> yeah. spoilers, so I need to let everybody know there's some spoilers maybe coming up. Um, sure. But first of all, is the, the Finch family, are they real? Uh, I mean, they're <laughs> loosely based okay. on my own family, but uh, there's no, you know, single like, oh, yeah, this person was this historical figure. Right. Okay, well, there's that. And now these are the spoiler questions, um, just because I need to know, Cliff wants to know, and there's a lot of theories. And I'm sure you know yeah. one of the questions. Um, what actually happened to Molly? Oh, well, <laughs> see, this is the thing. I don't actually know. Um, you know, this is not a, like, part of what this game is about is about the inability for us as human beings to really understand the world. And it's not because people haven't told us the facts it's because we can't actually understand you know what is going on in the world in the same way that like you can't explain play tectonics to a cat like <laughs> their brains just they can't do it you know and that's right. looking at like hp lovecraft and neil gaiman and a lot of the people that inspired this game you know it's a very common theme right that we think of the world as being very understandable but it's actually you know kind of beyond us and you know in the case of molly uh like i don't really know what happened i mean we have the facts, right? And that's, we've, we've told you the facts of this girl, uh, you know, was born and died at this time. 
this is Molly's version of events. You know, there are a few things that people comment on, you know, in the story uh, about Molly. But that's really like all we have to work from. You don't actually know what really happened. Um, so I think it's it's really like up to players to decide what kind of makes sense to them in the same way that we all do in real life, right? Of just like trying to figure things out that kind of make sense and we do the best we can. So sorry, oh, uh, no. but I don't actually have the answer to that question. Right. And well, and then the next question was kind of along the same lines as like a what happens to, because Milton just yeah. goes missing and nobody ever hears from him ever again. Uh, well, you know, I think Milton is a little bit uh, is a little bit clearer because, you know, in the case of, uh, you know, that story, there's a whole other game, The Unfinished Swan, that, uh, you know, is about what happens to Milton. Oh, so see. Milton is the, um, you know, becomes the king in The Unfinished Swan. So there's a you know, PlayStation 4 exclusive game that, that kind of explores what happened to Milton. And then Cliff and I discussed this the day after we'd finished playing through the game. Uh, at one point, Edith claims responsibility for the death of two of her three childhood hamsters. What happened there? How's she responsible? Um, it's not explicitly in the game anywhere, but you know, I think my uh, my guess would be that uh, you know when she had these hamsters, perhaps as like an eight or nine year old, uh, you know, she wasn't the most responsible. Uh, you know, maybe there were, you know, some lapsed feedings, maybe, you know, some of the hamsters accidentally escaped. Uh, you know, I think it's kind of a sad fact that, uh, you know, children right. are you know, not really the best caretakers. They're still learning as they go. And sometimes hamsters pay the price for that, that learning. Yeah, it's kind of, it's a very relatable to, you know, people who have kids or who, I mean, we were all kids and we've all had a pet yeah. or maybe uh, maybe we've had a few pets that died on our watch because we forgot a feeding or if we we forgot to do this, we forgot to do that. So it's very relatable to go, oh yeah, I know how she feels yeah, no, when she I, says I, that. Yeah, I think one of the things I remember growing up is uh, like my sister had, uh, had gerbils and occasionally one of them would just disappear. <laughs> you know, you'd be like, what happened to it? And then maybe a day or two later they'd be found often alive, but not always. <laughs> Gotcha. Uh, so anything on deck that's coming up from you or your team uh, in terms of your next uh, big project or game? Oh, uh, well, I would expect, you know, a bit of a lull for a while. <laughs> Take a break. Uh, Finch took us about four and a half years, and I think the next game probably like a similar trajectory. But, you know, I think it's going to be something very focused on animation and, you know, sort of the way that animals move. That's what I'm really interested in right now, and I'm kind of exploring what that might be like as a game, but kind of similarly to Edith Finch, really don't know what that's going to look like. We're still just exploring this kind of interesting space and seeing, you know, what might work as a game. Very cool. Well, What Remains of Edith Finch is a fantastic experience, a fantastic game. Uh, it's currently out on PlayStation and on PC, but uh, on the day of the release of this interview, it will be available on Xbox. And if you own an Xbox, I cannot recommend it enough. This is my new favorite genre of games, and I can't get enough, so I'm really excited for everybody to experience it. No, oh, thank you. I'm, I'm excited, too. So there you go. Thank you, Ian Dallas, for talking with us today. Uh, what remains of Edith Finch? It's already out on the PlayStation and the PC, but day of airing, if you're listening to this right now, you can get What Remains of Edith Finch on Xbox. And I know we've got some Xbox fans out there. I know Cliff is an Xbox guy and a lot of, lot of you guys.
are all about the Xbox. So get online right now. Do it. Go buy What Remains of Edith Finch. It's fantastic. And, yeah, thanks for checking us out. And be sure to catch our regular show. It will be up tomorrow. If you're listening to this on Wednesday the 19th, uh, yeah, so it's that. Thanks. See ya. Bye. Chico Pitbull, Mr. 305, better said Mr. Worldwide, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game, so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Give the gift of choice this season with multi-store cards at giftcards.com. With multi-store cards, treat them to dinner, movies, or shopping on one convenient card. Featuring all your favorites like Macy's, Alta, and Lululemon. It's a great gift card everyone will love. For last-minute gifting, choose the Happy Holidays or Holiday Favorites e-gift, delivered straight to their inbox. Purchase multi-store cards today at www.giftcards.com slash multi-store.